Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 17. Probably not a familiar passage to many of you, but I hopefully tonight, if we're done, you'll see that it is an important passage for us. Deuteronomy is the second giving of Torah. It explains to God's people how they are to live God's way in God's world, even as they are surrounded by nations who worship false gods. This is a text that looks ahead when Israel, after Moses' time, would come to the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they would uh, conquer all of the enemies and they would set up their kingdom and this looks ahead to the time where they're going to ask for a king. And uh, although God doesn't want them to do that, he in some ways allows that to happen eventually and we'll hopefully take a look at that for a brief time in First Samuel 8. Um, but when that comes, God says, this is what you're to do. This is the kind of king that we are, you are to have as God's chosen people. So let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, key phrase here, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up by, above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The phrase, like the, all the nations, is only used three times in the Old Testament, Two, one of them here, two of them when they actually come to doing what this passage is talking about, when they actually come to ask for a king from Samuel, this phrase is used twice more. So this phrase really is very, very focused and specific on a very singular event, and that is Israel choosing a king, or wanting a king in particular. Um, Israel was called by God to be a nation that was surrounded by other nations, but not like the nations that surrounded them. Um, Israel was to be different. And for our perspective, looking back, um, it does look like they were strange at times, the things that they had to, couldn't eat and the things they wore and did and couldn't do. And 
But for them, it wasn't a time, they weren't odd different. They were God different. The things that the Levitical law said about how they were to be different would set them apart from the, all the other nations. And so what you find out, what you find is that when God asks his people to be separate or different, he wants them to be like him and not like the nations. And that's the passage, that's the part that this passage emphasizes. They wanted a king, but they wanted a king like the nations. They should have wanted a king like their God. And they were more interested in nation-likeness than they were in God-likeness, and that became the issue. And I want to approach that today, uh, fast forward it to the 21st century. That often happens for us. Uh, we want that for our leaders, and most importantly, perhaps, we want that in our own lives. And we want to be more like nation-likeness than we do want God-likeness. Uh, but being an Israelite, and it's most specifically their king, it was absolutely critical that there be a difference. And to have the difference, and even more so to maintain the difference, there had to be an absolute continual dependence on God. Um, and that had to start from the top down. And that's why there's two paragraphs in the ones I just read you of God takes the time to tell you this is exactly how your king must function. And the most important areas of what it means to be a king, this is what he cannot do and this is what he has to do because truthfully, as you'll see in the kings in scripture and why they were so heavily accountable, it's because God's king represented God's people. And the king was supposed to be God's main icon, his main likeness, that he was supposed to be like God more than anyone else other than perhaps the high priest. And so he was the representative to the nation. He stood for all the things that the nation was supposed to be about, especially when it comes to their relationship with God. So later on, this, king, this passage is going to tell us, and it happens in 1 Samuel 8, that they're going to ask for a king. Now that was a problem in this fact that they were asking for a king and here's what God says in 1 Samuel 8, 5 and verse, in verse 8, 20 which are the other two uses. Here's what God says to him in between those in verse 7. He says, Samuel, they're not asking for a king because they've rejected you. They're asking for a king because they've rejected me. So how did God see the choice? He saw it as a rejection. That when they wanted a king of their own like the nation's kings, Here's what was true. And I wrote this down in my passage. I put, they first wanted to have a king because the difference between them and the nations were they didn't have a king and the nations had one. So they, want, they wanted to be like them in that way. But it was more than just you have a king and we don't. It's the kind of king they wanted that really upset God. See? They wanted to have a kind of king that was like the nations. And so here's the under because they didn't want the kind of king that God was, see. And so I put in my paper, worldliness is a rejection ultimately of God being the king in your life. You know why they wanted the nation's king, one like that? Because they wanted someone else that they had. See, you could, you could manipulate, you could push, you could maneuver your king, you could assassinate him, you could help. See, you can't do any of those things with God. You can't control his authority and you can't control his rule over you. But you'd have some say. You'd have some say in the king. See, they wanted a king because worldliness is ultimately, in other words, when we want God, we don't want God's authority. We don't want God ultimately telling us what to do. So we want someone in his place, someone that we can manipulate, someone that we have some control over. 
So God's response to them is that, because yeah, when the time comes, you can have a king, but number one, watch this, I'm going to choose him. 1715 in our text, look there, it says, you can have a king, but it'll be one that God chooses. So here's the thing, they weren't going to be allowed to choose their king, God would choose that king. Here's what I learned and I wrote down. Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. You know what it means? I don't, I'm not very good at making sure I choose God as my authority over other people or other things that should have authority in my life. Adam and Eve showed us that. They hadn't even been under God's authority very long, and when it came to a choice between God and Satan, they chose Satan's authority. It was that quick and that easy for them. Because they wanted more freedom, they thought. They wanted to have more of decision-making possibilities when it came to defining what was right and wrong. And that's how we are. God says, listen, if you're going to be my people and my nation, you're going to be different than the world. You're going to have me choose your king because it's not in your heart naturally. It's not to choose the right kind of king. And so God's going to choose the kind of king that he wants because that king will demonstrate to the people what they should be like. So let me show, I'm going to break it down. It's only two sides of one coin. I'm going to show you both sides. Number one, I'm going to show you what the king was to be like on the outside. Okay? And then we're going to flip it over and I'm going to show you what the king was to be like on the inside. And as you're hearing me talk tonight, I want you to think of this. The king represented most of all reflection of God and this is what the people were to be like. So don't say I'm not an authority or a leader in the church and definitely not a king, so this doesn't apply to me. No, the king was represented, the people were to be like this guy. They were to shoot for and aim for to be like him as he reflected who God was. So let's take a look at it and unpack each of these two things one at a time. Firstly, what the king was to be like on the outside. This is the externals. Look at verses 15 through 18. It reads again, I will set, he says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And he has to be, here's the first requirement. He has to be one of your brothers. He can't be a foreigner. He has to be born Israelite. Like same thing, President of the United States. You have to be born American. You can't be from another country and become a citizen later in life. You have to be one of us. And the reason is, is because God says, you have to be on the same page with me and my people. You have to have been brought up Jewish. You have to have our heritage. You have to abide by our laws. You have to serve our God. And I don't want anything else in your background because this is how crucial the position is. So God wanted his king, who was going to be like him to his people, to represent him properly. Okay, now, now, there's going to be another huge thing, and there are three main categories of how that this king, being an Israelite and a chosen person of God, had to be different than the kind of king that other nations had who didn't know their God. And there's three main ways, all right? But before I point it out to you, take your pen, because we're going to do a little grammatical work, and I want to show you that the two th- there's four things he's going to say. Three are negative, one's positive, but these are two contrasting categories, Let me show you by having you circle the word, all right? In verses 16 and 17, he's going to say this little phrase, for himself, three times. Here's the three things, and they're marked off with that little phrase. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses, circle it, for himself. See that? Or cause the people to return to Egypt and not go that way again. Verse 17, second one, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Nor shall he have for himself, 
excessive silver and gold. So that little phrase, here's three things. And the whole category listing of how he has to be different than the other, it's, it starts with the little word only. So this is, say, God says, this is absolutely crucial. If I had to boil it down <coughs> to this one thing, this one set of things <coughs> that Israel's king had to be different was, this is it. So this is God's singular problem broken down into three pieces of what worldly kings versus godly kings were like. And it's going to be a contrast because look at verse 18, and we're going to get that to that point when we flip the coin over in a minute, right? So 17, 18 says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write, there it is, for himself. See that? So that's the key words. There's three of these for himself that he can't do, and there's one that he can do. And that's going to make him a godly king versus a worldly king. It's going to make him reflect God properly and how God does things in his kingdom versus how all the other kingdoms around them worked. So let's look at that. And, and, and can I say before, <coughs> to those of you who are parents tonight, um, before we go any farther, this contrast between a worldly king and a godly king and, and the requirements are not arbitrary. Let me say this, and by that I mean this. In Christianity, especially in conservative churches like ours, uh, kids tend to come up through the ranks in our church, so to speak, and we have rules. A lot of, you know, I don't know if it's this proper ratio, three times more than the, you know, no, than you do the yes. I don't know if that's really true. But nevertheless, you can get the perspective that following God and being di different and being a chosen person is, is having these two lists. Here's the things I can't do, and here's the things I can do. And you kind of get the idea that that's what it means to be different. See, my list is different than a worldly person's list. See, my cans are his cans, and his cans are my cans. <laughs> I mean, and they think, you really think it's that simple, and it really isn't. And I, I beg you, please don't raise your children that way. Don't raise your children to think that they're godly and they're really separate and they really love God because they follow the lists. That's not it. It's not that, I, see, I'm a good Christian because I don't do all that. They used to joke back in the day, I don't smoke and drink and chew and go with girls that do or something like that. Right? But, but see, you can have, you can, see, you can keep the list. And by the way, Pharisees had longer lists and more on it than you and I will ever dream of and they kept almost all of them in, in minutiae detail, and they weren't even close to being God, like God. Case in point, right? Here, here's the thing. You're going to find in this, there's this little phrase that's used three times in this text of the king personally, and it says this, and the Lord your God. The Lord your God. The Lord your God. And here's the point. There are lists and there are rules and God has yeses and he has noes and he has requirements, but not arbitrarily. He doesn't just say, hey, here's a bunch of laws. You're a Christian. I'm God. Do what I tell you. That's not it. You know what it is? The rules flow out of a relationship. The Lord, your God. I'm not just the God out there. I am your God. So this is not just about rule keeping because God is God and you're not. This is about a relationship that you have with God. He is transcendent and at the same time he is imminent up close. And what he wants from you and what he wanted from Israel's king and what he wanted from Israel's people is all the Levitical laws that were laid down were for a reason and he wanted them to see the purpose in it. Here's why. God says, here's what I don't want you to do and here's what I do want you to do. You know why? Because when you follow these rules, 
the nations around you will look at you and say, you're different. And so is your God. And now I know what he is like because I see the difference in you. So when your parents tell you or God tells you, see, you shouldn't get drunk and you shouldn't be immoral, you should be careful about how you look and dress modestly, and all the things that the Bible teaches about the externals, let me tell you this, it always should come from the internals, right? And that's what this is about. So when I say all these categories, there's way more to it, and you'll understand that in a little bit. The three categories, and I'm going to give them to you. If you're writing out notes, I hope this is easy for you to remember. Verse 16, here's the first thing you can't do. Here's the first thing about how the king was to be on the outside if he was to reflect God and not be like the nations. The first one is no trusting in war power. No trusting in war power. And here's how it sounds. You can't have a bunch of horses. (laughs) Two times, he says, you can't acquire many horses. And you can't go back down to Egypt to have many horses. If you read the Bible and the Old Testament enough, you're going to come to this simple realization, horses and chariots symbolize military prowess. So what God is telling this king, who's surrounded by nations, who want to invade them and wipe them out and kill them and all of that, and the dangers and fears, of God, here's what he says, you can't have a big army. You can't. You, you can't have horses, a lot of them. It doesn't say you can't have any, you just can't have a lot of them. Because there are times God has them fight, and there are times they need to have horses. Um, I don't remember if Israel had many, if any chariots, hardly ever, except maybe a couple different times. But, but all the horses and getting a bunch of them, here's what it means, that you're trusting military power, war power, over God power. See, and that's what he doesn't want. Psalm 20 in verse 7 says, Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. But we, God's people, will remember the name of the Lord our God. You look at the battles, and I've done in the past very explicit study on every battle in the Old Testament. And you know what I found? That the vast majority of them, not all, the vast majority of them, Israel didn't do anything to win. Nothing. God did, if not all of it, almost all of it, and they were the cleanup crew to chase them down and kill the rest of them. But you look at them, not because they didn't fight battles or they didn't struggle, or they, they did. There were times when they fought battles, but a lot of times you walk around Jericho, boom, it comes down. The sun stands still, you win. I bring the chariots of them into the mud, they can't move, you wipe them out. I mean, over and over and over, 300 people with Gideon wipes out 186,000 because he blows a trumpet and makes a noise, and they all run and kill each other. (laughs) I mean, over and over and over again. Here's how it wins. Here's how they win. God does it. God fights their battles for them. God wins it. And that's what he wants from them. He doesn't want them to trust the way, in military power, the way that the nation, the kings of the nations around them would do. Isaiah chapter 30 in verses 1 through 3, read it sometimes. He says, woe to you. It's, and woe means judgment. Woe to you, stubborn people who carry out a plan, not mine, who make an alliance, but not my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. And the next verse says, who set out to go down to Egypt. Remember he said, don't go down there anymore without asking my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Keep going. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame 
and shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Here's what God said. See, don't try to get a, a, you know, an alliance with Egypt. Don't, don't go down there to get their horses. You know why? Because you just keep proving that you don't trust me. You trust you or you trust the Egyptians. He says, woe to you, judgment on you if you do that. So let me tell you this. Practically, being different as a Christian is often going to include different forms of weakness. All the nations and kings around them, they had power. Everybody had power the same way. The more horses, the more chariots, the more soldiers, the more men, the more weapons you had, that means you were powerful. But when Israel purposely doesn't do any of those things, where does their power come from? Well, to the world, it looks like you're weak and impotent. And, and that's why God does these crazy things. You walk around the walls, that's all you got to do. Blow the trumpets. Okay, Gideon, you have this, and you do this little... See, it's crazy stuff that God tells his people to do because here's what he wants them to say. I don't want you to be reliant on you. I want you to be dependent on me. I want you to trust me. And you're going to have to be different to do that. And when you live differently, you're going to look like you're weak. You're gonna look, it's going to look foolish sometimes. I mean, the weakest thing in the world, was it not with the cross of Calvary? I mean, read 1 Corinthians, I mean, 2 Corinthians 13 sometimes. It, it purposely was the weakness of God making the greatest power statement ever. I mean, Jesus looked like he was a defeated, failed Messiah. And the opposite was actually true, but it didn't look that way. And then when you do that, see, in ministry, I, I'm reading a book right now by Timothy Gombas for pastors called Power Through Weakness. Power, it's an oxymoron. It's paradoxical. It doesn't even go together. Power and weakness are antithetical, no? But not in ministry. See, today pa people want pastors who are successful, fill the church with all kinds of people. They're not too much interested in faithfulness over success because the average pastors, you know the average senior pastor and the youth pastors stay in a church is somewhere between three and five years. People want a pastor with personality and with charisma and sometimes even more so than holiness. They want a great speaker and an executive business type manager, but not so much a great servant. They want someone who's going to make them happy at times more, far more than make them holy. And that's because we're, we're following the way of the world in that. And, and sometimes we don't like the weakness in our marriage when the husbands love your wives. And then he says, oh yeah, and here's how I want you to do it. Just like Christ died on the cross, that's how I want you to do it. Wives, submit to your husbands. I, that's not a 21st century thing. Could it be? How can you possibly do that? That goes against everything that women's rights and equality stand for. And it looks weakness. It looks like you're archaic. It looks like you're antiquated. Right? So it doesn't look right or feel right, and people don't accept it today. So it's hard to be different, isn't it? How about in relational disagreements and differences in people in your church? You're taught, our, we live in the cancel culture, so if someone disagrees with you, you know what, I just pick up my bags and I leave, and I go somewhere else, and it happens in churches all the time. It happens all the time. We don't want to be different because we don't want to be dependent. We don't want to sit down and talk with people and work it out because we're family. That's not how it works anymore. Because, see, we're, it's, a, it's a new form of worldliness, he says. So you can't, no trusting in war power. Number two, no trusting in wife power. No he says, you can't multiply wives. And all of us guys are saying, well, okay, I don't, I don't want that either. Right? But in, back in those days, 
to have multiple wives was a symbol of wealth and power. Only rich guys could have more wives than one, especially when you come up to David and Solomon having hundreds of them. I mean, Solomon had seven, can you get the 700 wives and 300 concubines? I mean, the guy was a lunatic. Right? Why did he do it? You know why? Here's why. Political power. That's why. Because when you married the daughter of a foreign king of a nation who wasn't like yours, he isn't going to invade you and you're not going to have to worry about fighting him because your daughter lives in your house. So you know why they had all the wives that they had? Because it, it was a symbol of power, political power and wealth, and it was, the, it was a form of securing themselves. It was how they got security in a very volatile and violent age. They got it through marrying women. It was a political move. It was. And here's what God says. I don't want you to trust in wife power. I don't want you to trust that you can do things and get peace and security for you and your nation through marrying somebody's daughter. I don't want you making alliances with Egypt, marry her daughter, or all these other countries. In case in point, read 1 Kings 10 and 11 of Solomon. You know why he had so many wives? He married everybody who was his enemy. He married all their daughters. And what happened to him? <laughs> Three things you can't do. You can't multiply horses, you can't multiply wives, and you can't multiply silver and gold. Read 1 Kings 10 the end and 11. You know what he did? He went down to Egypt and got all the horses he possibly could. He had more than anybody else. Number one, strike. Number two, he had 700 wives. I mean, I think that beats multiplying wives pretty good. Strike two. Number three, he had so much silver and gold, everything that was about his throne and in his chamber and in the temple was overlaid with pure gold. And let me tell you this, it says in the verse, I think it's verse 29 of 1 Kings 10, there was so much silver in Solomon's reign that it was equal to a stone on the street. It wasn't worth anything. He had so much silver that if you picked up a bag of rocks and a bag of silver, it was equal in value because you could get it by the truckloads, literally. That's how rich the guy was. I mean, he disobeyed all three. You know what? He had become a king like the nations. And you know what happened to him? Read it. His foreign wives, who he married and got all the treaties with and alliances and secured peace, you know what he got? Outside peace. But you, never, you know what he got? He didn't get any peace for his life or the spirituality of his people because it says it tore his heart away from God and God tore the kingdom away from his ancestors. Can I tell you this? You know why? Because he didn't want to be different. He didn't want to depend on God. So I wrote down, you know this, your big G identity, God, if you don't maintain it, you will settle for little g, small g God identities. So if God's not your identity and Jesus isn't your identity, you will settle for the career is my identity and my sexuality or my gender is my identity or my business is my identity or the grades I make in school are my identity or the achievements I have in sports are my identity or, and on and on this goes. Because every time you don't maintain your big G identity, you will settle for and substitute for a little G identity. And every time you do it, as Solomon, it'll tear you away from God. It'll wreck your life. Every day to trust God and depend on him is a fight to keep your main identity your main identity. You know how I know that? Because I know, I, I've watched the internet, I hear people talk, and I see people's lives, and I know this, that for some, it's their political party affiliation that's really their primary identity. 
It's not being in Christ, it's being in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party or whatever it is. And you can tell it that they've settled for little g identity. Some people, it's their social status. We even heard that tonight. That's a struggle for a lot of people. That instead of being in crisis, it's what they have and the, and the house they have and the car they have. Not because it's wrong to have a nice house or a nice car, because it isn't. But when it becomes your main identity and it controls you and moves you and becomes the most important thing in your life, it becomes a major issue. For some people, it's their ethnicity. It's being white or it's being black or being whatever you are. See, when that becomes more than you, that you can't see all your choices. See, all your choices are determined by your ethnicity or your background or your culture. My career is my identity the title behind my name, the office I have, the position in my company, the power that that position gives to me, or my gender, my sexuality can be, become my primary identity. And those are all the forms of identity, I, I, worldliness today. They're different. They're not, it's not just being immoral anymore. It's not just saying, oh, I listen to rock music or I don't, you know, my skirt's too short. You know what it is? It's, it's more insidious than that. It's having an identity. It's, it's defining who you are. And God says, listen, you want to be my king, and this is what to reflect to my people? He says, you can't, you can't trust in war power. You can't trust in wife power. And lastly, you can't trust in wealth power. You, you can't, it's not silver and gold. He said, it's not that you can't have any silver and gold. It's not excessively you got to have enough to feed your family and take care of your nation and do all the things you need for infrastructure. And here's what he says, but I don't want you stockpiling it to think that you don't need me anymore. It's, it's, the, it's the travesty of money, isn't it? When you love it. Solomon did. He loved it, but it, it never gave him the financial power, never, never, never gave him the personal security that he looked for. It certainly didn't give him the spiritual life that he was looking for. And he ended up breaking all the rules. And you know why he broke all the rules? Not because he didn't grow up in church. Not because his dad wasn't the most spiritual guy in Israel's history, perhaps, other than a couple others. He had all that. But why? Because Solomon had the externals. He had the externals. But he didn't have the internals. So let's flip it over before we're done. What was the king of Israel to be like on the inside? Mark it down in the text. Two times the king's heart is described. Okay, Once in verse 17 and once in verse 20. And let me tell you, there's two parts. If you're going to have God's heart as God's king or God's citizen, here's what it has to look like. Verse 17 says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Now, see again, why? What's behind the rules? Here's why. Because it will turn his heart away. It's a problem, isn't it? You know why God doesn't tell you and your kids not, don't do certain things? Not because he's raining on your parade. Because he knows if you get into those false identities and those practices, it'll turn your heart away from him. Look down in verse 20. He says at the end, he says, you know why? Because in ver he says, you can't be above your brothers that he may not turn aside, verse 20, from the commandment. See, turn away. I don't want you turning away from me in my worship. I don't want you turning aside from my commandments. It's a danger. It's a danger. You can't turn away from God. And what's at stake is your heart. See, 
So God's king is not just different on the outside. And so we, we emphasize way too much, hey, don't have your hair too long, and I only have so many ear piercings, and please, by God's grace, don't get a tattoo. And, all those, and we have all these things on the outside. But what about the heart? What about it? What about your heart? Where is your kid's heart? Where is yours? Because you can conform all you want on the outside, and I'm not saying it's wrong because God mandated it. But not without the heart. Not without all the things that should be going on the inside because rules are to be done out of having a relationship with God. That's why it's the Lord your God. So how do you have God's heart? Two things, ready? Keep the world out of your heart and keep the word in your heart. Let me say it again. Keep the world out of your heart, but keep the word in your heart. So he says, here's what you don't do because you want to keep from turning aside. So here's what I can't do. If I'm going to have God's heart, right? Here's what I can't do. I can't have the world in there. So I don't multiply for him. I don't multiply wives because you know what happens? We become obsessed with women and power and stuff. You know what happens? I'm torn away from God. I can't do both. Jesus was very insistent that you can't love God in money. You can't love God in power and sexuality. You can't love them both. Here's what he says. You can't do that. So Keep the world out of your heart. And unfortunately, in our circles, I call it half Christianity because we have half holiness. We think holiness is almost primarily all this. Just get rid of all the bad stuff. And it is half of the equation. Holiness by subtraction is important. Don't ever diminish that. But holiness by addition is the other half. See? So we get rid of the worldliness in our heart, but what do we have in our heart in its place? Because if you don't put something in its place, you're in serious trouble. So I deny this, but I delight in this. And you know what it is? Look what he says in verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, which means when he's sitting there judging and ruling in God's place, he shall, here's the fourth himself, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. Do you see what he's saying? See, watch. Here's what the nations are like, and we can't be. We can't be trusting in war power or wife power or wealth power, but what, we can, what can we trust in? Word power. See that? Not, not war power, not wife power, not wealth power, word power. You know what he wants? Don't have this in your life. Don't have this. Don't have these three things. Here's what you have. When you're sitting on the throne right next to you, you know what you got? You got your own personalized written out copy of the Bible. That's what you got to have. And he has the LPV. You know, we have the King James, New King James, ESV. He had the LPV, Levitical Priesthood Version, because it said it had to be approved by the Levitical priests. So that was the standard Bible of the day. You had to have somebody who had the law and it was written out correctly and you had it sitting there. So every time as a king, if you're God's king, you're making a decision. It wasn't like, oh yeah, here's what I think will help economically. Oh, here's what I think is an advantage to me. And here's what I can pull some extra money. No, it's none of those things. You know what it is? What does God say? What does God say? So I put down on my paper, if you're going to be God dependent, you will also have to be Bible dependent. You can't have God say, God, I want to be your chosen man. I want to be your, cho I want to live like you. I want to be different. You can't do it without the Bible. That's why he asked the survey question. You've got to have the Bible. It has to, it can't be the Bible just sometimes or the things that are, no, everything. What does the Bible say? What is the principle? What is the framework that I should think through this issue? 
in my life. And it says this, when you have the Bible, just don't read it, it shall be with him. Do you see that? Look at the text. It shall be with him. It'll be right there. It'll go every decision you make for you, your kingdom, your family, the people that you're judging. When you, it's the Bible. It's with you. It is everything. In fact, he says this. How encompassing. You shall read it all the days of your life. When you step on the throne to the time you die, here's what's going to mark you. Not riches, not power, not military battles, not victories. God's word. God's word. That's what has to mark you. Last thing, and when that happens, let me show you. Here's what it will look like, i.e. first when you're king. There are three purpose clauses in the last verse or two, and they all begin, circle it in your Bible, with the word that. You see it there? You will fear the Lord your God. See the verse 19? And he, it shall be with him. He'll read it all the days of his life. First one, that he may learn to fear the Lord as God. Second one, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Thirdly, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments. So God has a purpose for what he wants. This is why you have to do what he says. This is why the word of God has to be crucial to you in forming everything in your life because God has a purpose. What is the, how is it going to show up on the king's heart? Now, last thing and I'm done. You remember at the beginning of the text? Here's what it said. That you are... Here, I'm going to set a king over you, Israel. Four times. Over you, over you, over you, over you. Look for yourself, the first three verses. Four times God says, you know what the king's going to be? Over you. And so positionally, the king is going to be power over people. He's going to be up here. But look what it says when you have God's heart. You read my word because when you're the king and you're over people, Here's what you have. Outside, you're over people, but on the inside, that's not how you think. You're not using your position for your own personal advantage. You know what he says? That you will not be lifted up in your heart to think that you are above your brother. But isn't he above his brother? He's the king. He's over them. Yeah, externally, he's over them. But here's the difference in God's king and all the nations over them positionally, but not in practice. In practice, you're a servant at heart. You're not above your brother. You're like your brother. There would be coming a day in Israel's future, after all the failed kings who were not like this, that there would come a king. And his name would be Jesus, the Christ, the king. And you know what he would tell his disciples? The rulers of the leaders of the nations around you, the Gentiles, they lord it over people. And, and they take their position and use it for their own well-being. And here's what he says, but it shall not be among you. You will not be like those kings. You're my disciples. You're my pastors. You're my people. You don't act like them. You're not like, you don't get your cues from culture. You get them from Christ, see, and Jesus would be the greatest likeness, the greatest reflection, perfect of God. He would be the king that Israel never had. So here's the lesson. To be like the king of Israel as God designed it is to be like his son. And could there be a greater desire and ambition that we could possibly have than that? There can't be. But it doesn't happen by saying, here's what I want to attain to this position. Because externally you may get up here, but always here, here in your hearts. That's what the difference 
See, if you want to make a difference, it starts here. And it doesn't matter who you are, the king or everyone else who wants to be like God. That's the kind of heart we have to have. That's what it means to make a difference, but you've got to depend on God to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. If we want to be different like Israel's king and its people needed to be in a, in a bunch, around a bunch of nations who are anything but that, if we want to be different in our world, we have to find our identity in you. We have to trust you. We have to depend on you. And we have to be people of the book. We can't just give lip service or nod our heads to it. We have to live it out and apply it. And every circumstance and situation help us, Lord, as individuals, as families, as a church, to do that. We are, find it so easy, so easy to be like the nations. Instead, Lord, help us to be like you. And we'll thank you for it. In your matchless name we pray. Amen.